today from the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put in order what put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You may be seated. Good morning. Continuing in Titus, um, Titus is given this uh, this assignment today. And um, thinking about this, I wonder if uh, what what kind of difficult assignments uh, you've ever been given, ever been sort of left with. Um, Paul begins, this is why I left you um, in Crete with this kind of assignment. There's quite a few, maybe it's a, maybe a a work assignment that you were set with that was um, challenging, difficult, maybe because of people that you were left in charge of. Uh, The one that came to my mind, um, I don't know how many of you older kids have ever been left in charge of the younger siblings, but that was the task given often to my oldest sister, uh, Bethany. And the birth order in my house growing up was uh, Beth is the oldest and then three boys. I'm in the middle of those three boys and then uh, my two youngest sisters. And so um, when Beth was left in charge, she was given that authority from mom to uh, set things in order, to make sure that schoolwork was done, that chores were done, that, um, that uh, we were obedient to what had been assigned to us. Uh, one particular time the, uh, when it, during growing up that uh, I'm, I'm not sure where, where mom was off to, but uh, mom left Beth in charge, and Beth was very capable. Very, She has sort of that um, 
just that uh, responsible um, way about her. But, uh, but, but mom left her in charge of all of us, and the three of us boys were, um, we were sort of the insubordinates in the, in the house. We had, like, just a couple of days before this particular uh, day, uh, we had discovered that uh, the, the shop vac that mom used, if you reverse, if you put the hose on the other side and reverse the flow of it and then, um, then packed aluminum foil uh, into fairly perfect spheres that fit, you know, just the right caliber for the, uh, the piping on the, on the shop vac, you would have a pretty good uh, cannon to use um, for indoor and outdoor battles. So we... Um, we had just perfected this, so the timing was not good. Um, we needed to. We had f- made some ammunition. We hadn't given it a full test run yet, though. So we did um, conveniently wait until mom was out of the house, and then we uh, launched the battle. The, the house that I grew up in, there was a the downstairs. The upstairs was sort of a loft, and so you could you could have one team upstairs in the loft and. Uh, and we fired up uh, quite a bit of, we probably went through a roll or two of aluminum foil um, just, just uh, firing on each other. Then we, then we expanded to, you know, if you could uh, ball up toilet paper and, and uh, stick it in there. And then there were Sharpies involved in the, um, so we had sort of a, um, a buckshot that came out of the, the, uh, the vacuum cleaner. So... Beth, of course, was reprimanding us consistently through the whole thing. Uh, we tried to draw her into it. It didn't work. Um, but in the, in the, she was given this assignment of setting things in order, and we were the chaos to her order. Um, but we did, a, we did a fairly good cleanup job. We got everything um, straightened out uh, by the time that Mom was back, except that our hanging light fixtures had a couple of remaining Sharpies in them, which we didn't notice, uh, but, of course, Mom did. Um, so the question came to Beth, what happened? And, uh, Beth being the gracious older sister that she was, she, you know, well, we, we kind of made a mess of things. Um, but it didn't take long, didn't take my mom long to figure out, you know, who the real instigators were. But Titus is left in Crete with, uh, the assignment of putting things in order, putting what remains in order. We met Titus last week and had an introduction to, to Crete and the kind of place that it was, um, full of these, these Cretans who we saw again today are uh, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, um, and a group of new young churches that have, that, uh, that have been planted but that are, are young in, their, in the progression of, of their growth and um, and so Paul leaves Titus there and says, I'm leaving you there to set things in order. I'm leaving you there to put what remains in order. And it's a tough assignment that, that Titus is given. It's going uh, to take endurance from, from him, and it's going to take the, really the grace of God through Titus at work to set, set things in order. So in... Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Titus' assignment is to put what remains into order, and one of the first ways that this is going to happen is through the appointing of these elders. That phrase, put in order, uh, can mean put 
into order further or besides. So Titus is bringing, to, bringing order to a fairly new work of the gospel that is spreading through the chaotic and worldly island of Crete. Um, the, the word um, in the Greek uh, comes from the, to set over and um, orthos or straight or upright, where the, similarly to where we get the, the word orthodox. So to set things right, to set things straight, to set things the way they should be. What remained is, um, it, it, first it might seem like that's the, that the work is mostly done and there's just a few things remaining, but this word really means um, what's left behind or even what's lacking. So there's, the work has begun, but there's a lot that hasn't been completed yet. David Guzik mentions in his um, commentary on Titus that uh, if we compare the work that Titus has been assigned to in Crete, uh, as, as opposed to the work of Timothy in Ephesus, um, there was a lot more lacking in terms of what Crete, uh, what the Cretans have been taught. Um, and so Titus is in the earlier stages of setting the church into order. We see today that he's to appoint elders. We don't see uh, Paul talking about deacons because that's a later um, addition to the order of the church. Um, but uh, Paul gives the, the Ephesians three long chapters in the book of Ephesians of uh, deep doctrinal theology uh, that we're, we're going through on Wednesday nights. Um, but, in, but in Crete, the task is much earlier stages of the church, in the church's growth. So this work is fairly recent. So Paul acknowledges that the, the setup and the order of the churches is not complete yet. And he says, that's what you're to do, Titus. Set the things that are remaining in order. Now for the rest of Titus, as we progress through this book, we're going to see um, instructions that Paul gives to him in how that's supposed to work. How, how is the gospel going to set things in order in these churches, in the different spheres of the, the people's lives? Um, but today, we see that he unfolds one of the biggest areas that are going to be set in order through the appointing of elders. So he says, to appoint elders in every town. And first of all, Titus is given this authority to do the appointing. It's not a popular vote decision that, by which elders come into place in these young churches. Paul has appointed Titus to this work. And now Titus will be appointing others to help in this work, to continue this work, to set in order the things in each of those individual churches in each of those individual towns. This is a loving thing that Paul is modeling here and that he's calling Titus into. Because a young church that hasn't been taught in the fullness of the gospel and, has, and is immature and is in need of elders generally will not have, has not been under the sound teaching for a long period of time. They're, they're, its people are not equipped to choose leaders who will who will lead them in sound teaching and in right living so paul as the as the mature elder has appointed titus and is giving titus this task to appoint those who will continue the work in each of these churches He's, he tells him to appoint elders we'll get to elders appoint elders in every town and this is the the consistent pattern in the new testament church governance each church community is led by elders who are appointed by the apostles or by other elders. We see this in the book of Acts in chapter 14 and, 20, and verse 23 
when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the biblical pattern here gives us some insight about the scale of responsibility and the leadership in Jesus' church. Elders are given the responsibility of overseeing individual congregations, of teaching sound doctrine, of leading the church in biblical living, of equipping the saints for the work of ministry from Ephesians 4. And where a new work of the gospel is beginning, new elders are going to need to be appointed by those who are mature. This is the pattern set forth by Christ in the appointing of the apostles, and it's the pattern followed by the apostles in the appointing of elders in New Testament churches. And there's a wise and loving, we've been talking with the kids on Wednesday night about Christ Jesus building his church. And we talked last week about the loving guardianship that Christ exercises over his church by appointing these men, by calling these men to do this, to, 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 to guard um, and teach and shepherd Christ's church. There's wise guardianship here that mature elders appoint elders, appoint mature men to continue that biblical leadership in Jesus' church. It guards against poor leadership and poor teaching weaseling into the church during a time of transition. And we've, we see this, I think, in... Um, we, all, we all may have an example, but you can see the vulnerability when there's a transition of leadership. If it's left up to uh, a popular vote decision or, a popu- or uh, uh, um, following the way that, that the world uh, pre- goes about succession of leadership, there's vulnerability there. These elders, one of their tasks is to oversee that succession, to oversee that the, the gospel is forefront and that mature men are stepping into these roles. So that's Titus's task, to go from town to town and to appoint elders in every town, just as Paul has instructed him. So how's he going to find these fellows? How's he going to know who to appoint and who not to appoint? Well, Paul gives him clear characteristics of the, the men that God is calling into this task. He's given the task of finding men who will serve these young Cretan churches. And Paul's instructions here remind Titus of the role to, to which these men are called and the character to look for that evidences the motivation in their lives. So the role of the elder in the church. Paul says, an overseer, if in, verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who who contradict it. So the role of overseer, and we've looked at this with the, the kids on Wednesday night as well, someone who's charged with seeing that things are set in order. So Paul is assigning to Titus, and Titus is sharing that assignment with the men that God has called to oversee each of the churches in Crete. 
We saw this word overseer in 1 Timothy 3.2 in the qualifications of elders that Paul gave to Timothy. The overseer is a leader and a guardian who will set things in order among the people God has called, to, called him to serve. In the kids' room, there is a picture on the wall of a shepherd um, with, with a, a flock of sheep, and one of those sheep he's, he's holding close to him. Uh, as a reminder to the kids, this is the role that God has called specific men to, to shepherd, to be guardians over the flock. It says, an overseer as God's steward. And this, this word, steward, oikonomos, if I if pronounced that even half right, um, gives a really clear insight into what, just what these men are going to be called to. It's a, a steward. It's translated as steward, especially a, a steward or manager or superintendent. Um, says whether a freeborn or, uh, as was usually the case, a freedman or a slave, to whom a man to whom the head of the house or a proprietor has entrusted the management of his affairs, the care of receipts and expenditures, and the duty of dealing out the proper portion to every servant and even to the children not yet of age. Now that's a humbling calling that these elders, these stewards, are called to. They're given the job, they're given the job of steward in the household of God. These men will be entrusted by God Himself through the ministry of Titus to care for the souls of God's own children. That's an intimidating thing. That's a humbling thing. So Paul says this isn't going this role, this calling isn't going to just anybody. He says, and, and he goes on from there to unpack the character of the elder. This should be a helpful template. This is something that's that, that Paul's handing to, to, to Titus to take into his travel through Crete, to keep his eyes open for the men, these kinds of men that God has called as elders. Says these men should be above reproach. We see that in First Timothy, the husband of one wife. We see that in First Timothy. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. First Timothy says he should be able to manage his household well. He's not arrogant. He's not quick-tempered. Not a drunkard. Not violent. Not greedy for gain. Hospitable. A lover of good. Self-controlled upright, holy, disciplined, and holding firm to the trustworthy word and able to give instruction and to rebuke those who contradict it. So what does this list tell us about the kind of men who are qualified to be elders? We, again, in, in uh, Wednesday night, we um, were talking about the qualifications uh, f- uh, for these elders that, that God calls to shepherd his church. Um, and I was trying to use the illustration of, uh, you know, explaining qualifications. Well, what are qualifications? So um, I gave the example of uh, if I were to, um, Jason and Indy, if I were to uh, hop into uh, one of the dump trucks and just start driving down the road, um, what, 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 do you, what do you think would happen? And I gave that question to the, to the kids. And I, I think it was Hallie that uh, said almost under her breath, Crash. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> You're right. Uh, because I'm not qualified to get into that dump truck. 
Um, and it's not just about the, the, the lack of CDL or the lack of paperwork. Um, it's that I don't have the first clue about which, uh, what, what things to, to push and pull and what things not to. So what kind of men are qualified to be these stewards, to be these guardians, to, to, to shepherd God's own children? Well, first, let's take a look at what's not on the list. There's no mention of talent or giftedness. No mention of charisma, no mention of being a high-capacity leader or entrepreneurial or managerial skills. What is on the list? What we find in this, in this list, if we can call it that, is really a literary picture of the evidence of something deeper, of godly character and a commitment to the truth that has been evidenced over the long haul. That's really what this template is that Paul is handing to Titus. Isn't it the outward expression of an inward life? This long and impressive picture of characteristics is meant to be the evidence that Titus is looking for of some underlying character in these men. This long list or picture is is a list of attributes. It's the evidence of real gospel knowledge displayed in the real spheres of a man's life. It's from, from last week, it's epignosis on display in all these spheres of life. Paul has already said in Titus 1.1, he says that this is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with God, godliness. The characteristics on display in this template that Paul is handing to, to Titus is that there's a real knowledge of the truth. There's a real epignosis. There's real experience with the gospel. Do you see it in his life, Paul's asking Titus? Do you see the gospel at work? Do you see a life that accords with godliness? So Titus has been assigned to go throughout the towns of Crete, appointing men to oversee and steward God's church. And as he looks, he's not, going to be, he's not going to see their knowledge. We don't see epignosis with our eyes, but we see the evidence. He's going to see the evidence of that knowledge in the character of these men, in their lives. These elders that Titus is, calling, is going to be appointing are going to be joining in the work for the sake of the faith of God's elect. They must therefore be men who have been mastered by the true right knowledge, the experiential knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are men who are defined by that knowledge. They are men in, in, who, in whom that knowledge is put on display in each area of their lives. In the book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper says, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know the few great things that matter, perhaps just one, and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. If you want your life to count... If you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on into eternity, you don't need to have a high IQ, praise God. You, need to have, you don't need to have good looks or riches or come from a fine family or a fine school. Instead, 
you have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things, or one great, all-embracing thing, and be set on fire by them. If we explore just a few ways that this epignosis is evidenced in the lives of these men, we see what, we, what these men really believe about God and themselves is evidenced in how they live their lives. What you and I really believe about God and ourselves will show in how we live our lives. Paul says these men must be above reproach. They're men of integrity. They're the same in public and in private. They're undivided men. There's internal consistency in their lives. Where does that internal consistency come from? Where does that integrity, where does a lifestyle above reproach come from? It comes from a true belief that a man walks before the eyes of the Lord. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. These elder qualified men are living according to that truth. That there's no double life here. There's no desire to, to hide this part of my life and, and put on public display this part of my life. He's the same in, in public and in private. Paul says, the husband of one wife. If he's a married man, he knows the meaning of marriage as a gospel picture and is faithfully walking through the sweet seasons and the hard seasons with not the goal of a happy, easy, validate me kind of marriage, but with his eye on his wife's eternal hope and joy being rooted in Christ. That's the fuel for faithfulness over the long haul of marriage. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Again, 1 Timothy says he must manage his household well. So how's that show up? Well, if he has kids in his home, he knows the meaning of fatherhood as a gospel picture, and he's faithfully walking through the seasons of parenting, again, not with the goal of happy, comfortable kids having an easy life, but with his eye on his children's eternal hope and joy being rooted in Christ. Now that phrase says, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Does this mean that a man who has unsaved children is disqualified as an elder? Well, first of all, we should look at the, the word believers can be translated as faithful, whose children are faithful, which coincides with the rest of the verse. His children are faithful children who have respect and reverence for his authority, and they're not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. But secondly, we know that salvation is God's work through the Holy Spirit. That a man, the best of fathers, is not the power through whom his children come to faith. But it does mean that a father's life and leadership should be a strong evangelistic influence in his children's lives. That his children should be in submission to his loving authority and that there should be a gospel pattern from breakfast to bedtime. They're hearing the real gospel and seeing the real gospel and his evangelism. And God is faithful to, to us as parents in the, as we put forth the gospel on display in front of our kids. That, and that includes when we, when we do well and when we do poorly. 
How many great evangelistic opportunities do we get because of our own failures in the face of, of raising our kids? When we can say, I didn't, I didn't serve you well in this. I was too harsh with you. And to, and to, to look my three-year-old in the eye and say, I'm sorry, and will you please forgive me? That's the gospel put forth in parenting, that we're not calling, we're not leading our kids to look to us for everything, but we're leading our kids to look to eternity, to look to Christ, to see the only lasting hope that they have is in Christ. And it brings us to our knees in prayer over their souls, that God would open their eyes to the gospel and save them for his glory. Now, wives and children are mentioned here. So does that mean that a single childless man is disqualified as an elder? Can a single man not be called by God to shepherd the church of God? Well, it would seem from the pattern of Scripture when we look at examples like Jesus and uh, Paul that God is using unmarried men, childless men, to shepherd his church. So marriage and children, rather than being elder requirements in themselves, they're given here as specific spheres of life where that epignosis, experiential knowledge, will be clearly evident in a man's life. A man's marriage and children are the place where his shepherding will be evident before he is called to to shepherd the church. As we saw in 1 Timothy Chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, he must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So Titus is going to go from town to town and and be meeting with these churches and meet men who are in different seasons of life. And Paul's emphasis here is in those seasons and in those spheres of life, how is the evidence of the gospel showing up? So to the, for the married man who has children, you better believe that, that, that the gospel should be showing up in the way that he loves his wife and loves his children. But for all candidates of this appointment that Titus has been giving, the, these men, the, the lives of these men should reflect the gospel. And the list goes on, the template goes on. These men should not be arrogant. So he's not mastered by his own view of himself, but he's humbled before God. He's not quick-tempered. He's not mastered by his own temper, but he's trusting in the justice of the gospel. Not a drunkard. He's not mastered by any substance, but he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's not violent, not mastered by his own desire to control things and people, but he's submitting to to the justice of the gospel. Not being greedy for gain. He's not a lover of money, as 1 Timothy would say. He's not mastered by a desire for money and stuff, but he's content in the gospel that he has been given all he needs for life and godliness. He should be hospitable. He embodies the gospel. Just as Christ laid down his life for us, these men should lay down their their own preferences to bring others into the fellowship of the grace of the gospel. He's a lover of good. 
He loves to see, he celebrates where the gospel is at work in his own life, in the church, and in the world. He's self-controlled. All of his desires are submitted to the kingship of Christ. He lives upright, holy, and disciplined. Look at that, look at those three characteristics in comparison to what's common in Crete. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul says, no, these men shouldn't look anything like that. They should be upright, holy, disciplined. And he should hold firm to the trustworthy word. So the overseer holds firm to this word because he has staked his own soul and the souls of his people under his care on the gospel. I often hear in, in, in this church, we've put all our eggs in the Bible basket. We put all our eggs in the gospel basket. We hold firm to that, not just as, as something to be preached from here, but in every area of our, of our lives. He's able to give instruction in sound doctrine. He is gifted by the Holy Spirit with an ability to teach how the doctrine applies to life. And he has lived and is living the experience of how that doctrine shapes his own life. He's a genuine teacher with no hypocrisy. You know the best teachers that we, that we have are typically those who have walked through all of the, the material of what they're trying to teach us. They're practitioners who have, who have a, a passion to pass on what they've learned. He's able to rebuke those who contradict it. This is a big deal in Crete. There are a lot of contradictions coming. And so these elder qualified men are committed to the truth, not just that they're sold on an idea, but that they know the risk to, his, to their people's souls that comes through teaching anything other than the sound doctrine. So this is the template handed off to, to Titus. These are the kinds of men that God is calling to oversee his church. And it makes sense that Jesus would call these kinds of men. Again, it's Christ's love for his church that's evident in the care that he exercises and the kinds of men that he calls to shepherd her. There is both trepidation and encouragement in this template. First, I think it's intimidating in a helpful way to dwell on what a lofty calling it is to oversee Jesus' church. Those serving as elders should have some serious reverence concerning what's been entrusted to them. They're stewards of the very household of God. But there is also great encouragement in this because this description makes it clear that these men aren't heroes. They're not superhuman. These are just plain men, human, fallible, weak in themselves, in whom God's grace has produced godly character such that their lives are the evidence of their qualification to lead Jesus' church. This ought to encourage churches and young men who have the desire to teach and to shepherd that Jesus is in the business of building his church in every town and supplying his church with qualified leaders in every town. And the pathway by which he brings these men into their roles is not a curriculum path or a career path, but a character path. Paul instructs Timothy to appoint these kinds of fellows as elders. This looks like a a tough task, doesn't it? Going from town to town on an island full of scoundrels to find and appoint mature believers who are qualified to teach and lead new churches. It's kind of astounding, isn't it, that these men are just going to show up in every town. 
It's almost like Christ Jesus himself must be building his church. But these men are the real deal. And Christ calls them and Titus appoints them to do to, to what is going to be a pretty intense task given the kind of men who are already in the churches of Crete. And that leads us to the urgent need, the urgency of Titus's task. Verse 10 through 16 says, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So there's a presence already in Crete of false teaching coming through false teachers. The consistent threat to the church is teaching that is contrary to the trustworthy gospel and those who bring it in. But what is this teaching that's being brought into the Cretan churches? Well, we don't know all the details of what was being taught. But the phrases circumcision party and Jewish myths indicate that it probably involved some version of following Jewish laws or rituals, claiming that something needed to be added to Christ's work. But we see clearly that there's nothing of true gospel in this teaching. What about these teachers? What about these these men? Maybe maybe Paul, they just uh, got a few little details of the doctrine wrong, right? Innocent mistake. Get, get that straightened out. Not according to Paul, though. There's no question about their motives, according to Paul. It says the teachings are being spread as part of a malicious deception campaign designed to exalt the teachers and bringing about the collateral damage of souls led from truth to destruction. Look at these false teachers as, as opposed to the men that Titus is called to appoint. Paul has given Titus an extensive description of the character to look for in the men called to serve as elders. And here he gives him a clear picture of the characteristics of those who threaten the church. He says they're insubordinate. They've got serious issues with authority. These men don't submit to authority. They're well practiced in all kinds of explanations of why they're above that rule or why they're free from that authority. That doesn't apply to us. We're we're different from that. He says they're empty talkers. Their speech may be able to hold a room, but it will never hold real truth. It's empty. Their mouths are full of empty air, and elders should be always with their mouths filled with the gospel, the weight of the truth. These men, these false teachers, are deceivers. They specialize in twisting the narrative, spinning it just to suit their own self-serving pursuits as opposed to serving as under-shepherds of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. These men are under-serpents of the devil, carrying on his, his own garden deception, whispering in the ears of the people, did God really say as much as they can? 
But elders are committed to the truth. They are fully convinced of God's word and will preach it no matter what the response to them is or the cost to them. These false teachers teach for the sake of shameful gain, selfish gain. This could be money. It could be pride. It could be control, building a platform. Their motivation is themselves. They're not teaching for the sake of the elect, as Paul has written to Titus and as Titus is called to teach. They're teaching for the sake of themselves, promoting themselves, elevating themselves. He says, these men fit with the rest of Crete. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. These false teachers are fundamentally the same as the worldly hell-bound culture that they come from. But they've slapped a religion sticker on their self-serving lifestyle, and now they're profaning the word of God, using it to promote their own agenda. He says they're defiled and unbelieving. They deny God by their works. They profess to know God. But there's no real knowledge here. There's no epignosis in their lives. Their works show that they don't believe God. They deny him. They're detestable, abominable. They're like a spiritual disease among the people of God, sending up an aroma of pride and power lust where grace should be. They're disobedient. And Paul says they're unfit for any good work. There's nothing of the Holy Spirit in any of their work. These teachers are so defiled by their self-serving deception that they couldn't pour you a glass of water without some plan to turn it for their own gain. These are some pretty harsh words about these men. Where does that language come from? Why is Paul so upset about these men who are coming in and saying that circumcision or obeying the law or obeying this ritual is is needed to, to be a real Christian? Paul's as serious as he is because he knows what's at stake in the teaching of the church. He tells Titus, these men must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. The word upset, it means more than just that families were getting their feathers ruffled. The word anatrepo means to overthrow or to overturn, to destroy or to subvert. These false teachers are bringing their clever little myths and plans and they're planting them among individuals so as to create rifts among family members and then among church members. It's insidious. You may have seen examples of this. There was, when when I was younger, there was one among my my friends in the church and um, that one of the the, uh, young men that was a little bit older than me had had met a a teacher through through a a camp that seemed like a solid, uh, solid, Christian camp to be a part of and but he went and he spent a summer there and he came back with some some different ideas different ideas about what it looked like to be a Christian some different ideas about the work of Jesus about the completeness of that work he came back with some ideas that yes the 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 cross was what we needed but to really be believers we also needed to be doing these things over here 
And it came through him, one of the young men that was still under the authority of his, of his father and mother. But they didn't bring their teaching. These teachers didn't bring their teaching to his mom and dad or to the elders of the church and say, you know, we, we would like you to evaluate this. And you know, they went after him. They got him. And by the time that it was becoming clear what the teaching was, there was already separation in the family. It's insidious. Paul tells Titus, these frauds must be silenced. He says, cut off the head of that snake. There is no room for tolerance or compromise where the twisting of the truth of the gospel is concerned. Silence them, shut them up, rebuke them sharply, let them see their error. But then he says, there's there's more to that motive than just silencing them. Primarily, Titus and these other elders are going to be shepherding, looking out for the souls of the, the people in their church. But among those souls are some who may be among these false teachers. And so one of the motives that Paul is speaking from is love for the teachers themselves. Verse 13 says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. He says, call out their deceptions and call out the deceivers themselves, but with the hope and the goal that they would see their wrong, that they would repent, and that they would come to learn and become sound in the faith. In other words, God has an evangelistic outreach plan, even for the pharisaical, Christ-denying, power-hungry wolves in sheep's clothing. And you can almost hear that Paul would rejoice in that truth. Because that's who Paul was. And the man from whom Paul was saved was himself by God's grace. So rebuke them, Titus, and in your rebuking, plead with them to repent and to pursue sound doctrine according to God's mercy. And Paul gives Titus one more piece of doctrine just to take into his his next bout with these false teachers. He says in verse 15, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. To the pure, those who have been saved have been purified by Christ's blood. That blood that we celebrate each week at this table. That purity, the purity by which we have been purified in Christ's blood, cannot be one bit diminished by anything that any Cretan puts into his mouth, nor can it be one bit enhanced by any decades of law-keeping in rituals, whether in Crete or in Beckley, West Virginia. Paul says in Colossians, if you, if with Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul says for the pure, for those who have been redeemed according to Christ's gospel through Christ's blood, all things are pure. And we don't need to be worried about regulations. We don't need to be worried about rituals. But to those, but to those who are defiled, all things are defiled. And there's no amount of law keeping that can bring about the purity that's, that is brought only through Christ's blood. So there's your assignment, Titus. Set in order what remains 
that has been lacking in the churches in the towns of Crete. Start by appointing godly, epignosis kind of men to serve the church as elders. These will be your disciples for the setting in order work, and they will carry the trustworthy word into the ears of God's people in every town in which the church gathers, week in and week out. And while you're looking for these men, you're going to be met with and you need to contend with the men who are quite the opposite of elder. So you, Titus, hold firm to the word, not compromising the gospel, no matter how compelling the deception. Rebuke the family destroyers harshly, making sure they know their folly and where it will lead. But always urge them to repentance to become sound in their faith. So this is the assignment given, and more of it will be unpacked as we go through the rest of Titus, what that's going to look like in in the different spheres of life. But for today, we need to apply what we have seen. So three G's here for us. Three G's. Guardians, genuine, and gospel. First of all, guardians. Titus is given the task of appointing elders who will be guardians, who will be stewards, who will be shepherds over the household of God. This biblical pattern for church governance and leadership in the new new covenant is, is on display here of each church being led by elders. And where a new church is birthed, the appointment of elders, which is carried out by existing elders, is of first importance because these men will be the stewards, will be the guardians over the teaching and the spiritual well-being of people under their care. So where a new church is birthed, we're not, Paul's not telling Titus to go in and, and start by uh, initiating programs of ministry before there's good guardianship of the souls under, under Christ's care. This Elders appointing elders succession is a safeguard against the enemies of the church who would capitalize on a lull in leadership or a popular vote kind of leader who may not be rooted in the word and can unravel years of healthy church growth with a few months of dynamic sensationalism. Since Jesus is building his church, he is and will always be raising up elders to serve and protect her. Elders should remember the gravity and the grace of their calling. And we, as members here, we ought to be thankful. We ought to be praising God and thanking him for the guardianship that he has put in place through the men who serve us as elders. And we are thankful. And we ought not to take for granted that that they are... We ought not to take them for granted. We ought to be checking on our elders, loving our elders, serving our elders, praying for these men who God has called to lead us. There is a target on their backs. And the insidious attacks of the devil have had thousands of years to to be practiced. Pray for our elders. Thank God for them. And young members here, Many of you may well move away someday and you'll be looking for a church to call home. As we look and examine doctrine and practices, look too at how their leadership functions. And where did their leadership, where did their leaders come from? Where did their pattern of leadership come from? Are they concerned with ensuring that biblical men are leading the church in biblical unity or does that take a back seat 
to programs or attendance numbers or something else. And young men in the church who may one day be called to serve Christ's church in the role of elder or deacon, remember that the pathway by which he brings these men into their roles is not a curriculum or a career path, but a character path. Bible training and ministry training are good and gracious gifts, and we should take advantage of those. But they are no substitute for godly character. So if you want to serve the church, begin taking honest stock of how your character reflects the gospel. Which brings us to genuine. The life that is qualified to lead Christ's church is the life in which the evidence of epignosis is clear in every sphere. It's a genuine life of the gospel. Elders, in what area of your life has the gospel yet to take root in an experiential way? And this to all of us church members. We'll soon see in Titus that a life marked by good works, founded in knowledge of the real truth, is the, ex- the expectation not just for elders, but of all believers. So we should help and hold each other accountable to examine the genuineness of our lives and our faith to see whether the gospel truly permeates every sphere in which we live. Guardians, genuine, and finally, gospel. Elders and church members are engaged in all kinds of attacks on the gospel. Elders have the God-given task of engaging in battle to hold firm to, to defend the truth of the gospel against all those who would distort it. But elders are not called to do this alone. Church members, we are to be good Bereans. We are to be people who study and live by the truth. We hold firm to the gospel. It's our only hope. And we are able to defend that truth in our lives and in our families. When we engage with those who spread lies, let us do it with compassion and with an urgency that they might become sound in the faith. The gospel is our foundation and the gospel is our, our only hope and the gospel is what we bring in in an evangelistic way into all of these engagements with the world. In the book of Jude, towards the end, he says, Jude was, was also facing the the onslaught of false teachers and false gospels. And he says, You, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. And have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. It's, it's a merciful and gracious calling, but it's an urgent calling to contend for the gospel in our lives. So Titus' assignment to set things in order is founded here in the gospel. Trusting Christ, trusting that Christ is the head of his church, that he will be raising up men who will lead her and shepherd her and guard her and will be prepared to contend for that truth when it's, when it's attacked by those who would teach falsely. And we are called, each of us, to praise God for what he has done in building his church and what he will continue to do. And to be prepared in gospel motivation to contend for the truth. To hold firm to the sound teaching. Will you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, your word is such a gift to us, Father, that you would that you would teach us how we are to who we are in Christ and how we are to live in Christ by by writing to us, Lord. We thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts. God, that our lives, in every aspect of our lives, that we would cling to, hold firm to, stand fast on the truth of of your gospel. Reveal to us, Lord, where our hearts are led astray, what what parts of your truth are difficult for us, and and help us, help our our weak hearts. We praise you that you remember that we are dust, that you know our frame, And Father, we need your spirit to lead us, to help us to understand. Thank you for the men that you have called in this this body to be guardians over us. Thank you for those you've called to serve serve your, your body as elders and as deacons. And Father, help us to realize the value there and to pray for these men. We thank you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for a benediction? Continuing that, those verses from Jude and through the end of the book. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time now and forever. Amen. You are dismissed, but please stay and eat with us if you can.